we're going to talk about um, kind of uh, just a, a, an approach to, to seeing uh, world history and, and the progress toward um, the redemption of the world and, and, and the completion of, of all of the work that we've been doing through uh, all of the thousands of years of, of, of living in this world and, and, and this process of building that's been taking place. Um, I guess, um, you know, it, you can call it a, a theme song. A, a theme song of mine uh, has been um, throughout that, that it's impossible to understand your own life and it's impossible to understand the world that we live in unless you understand this following thought, which is that the world hasn't finished being created yet and that we're still in the process of, of building the world, of completing the world. And um, this is such an essential thing to know because, because it's, the, it's the very simple, well, it's simple if you know it, but it's the very, it's the very simple answer to some mind-bendingly difficult questions that you would otherwise have. These questions being that if, if God is all-powerful and if God is good, then how come there's so many problems in the world? Seemingly, if there's so many problems in the world, either those problems are stronger than God, so then God is not all-powerful, right? Or that God wants it to be exactly like it is right now. Meaning to say <coughs> that chaz v'shalom, God forbid, that God isn't good. Because God is very happy with all the evil that's around here. Because otherwise, why wouldn't he stop it? So, so you have these enormously huge... Uh, impossible questions unless you have the very direct answer, which we already gave, which is to understand that the world is still in the process of being created and that this is our role in the world, to finish the world. God makes us partners with him in terms of finishing the world. And that's, that's our job in this world. That's an, that's, an awesome, that's an awesome thing. If you understand that, then you can understand what the Torah is talking about on a very deep level, and this is where we are in terms of the cycle of reading the Parshas of the Torah, where we are right now in terms of Parshas Truma. Parshas Truma is talking about the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the holy temple, the base of Migdash, whatever you want to call it. It's that, that structure, that, that dwelling place for God, that, that headquarters for God, which is really, if you know, um, if you want to know why um, the... Uh, the Western Wall, or in sort of old-fashioned parlance, the Wailing Wall, people used to call it, the Kotel. In Jerusalem, why this is the holiest site of the Jewish people, this is the last remaining vestige, that wall. It's one of the outer walls, you should know, one of the most outer walls of, of the Holy Temple. That, that's the headquarters. And you should know it has a phenomenal history, that, that location, why it's so holy for us, for the whole world, really, but, but why, why it's the most holy sight of the Jewish people. When God created the world, you should know that, um, that the Big Bang Theory, if you will, or at least the, that the concept of it is, is, a, is a Jewish concept and dates back thousands of years. We say, um, according to our sources, that when God set about creating the world, making something out of nothing, and for all of history, ever since, something has made out of, been made out of something. 
Never since has something been made out of nothing since the creation of the world. As a side point that's very important in, your, in our own lives on a very practical level, if we want to bring some blessing into our lives, into the world, you have to start with something. You can't do it out of nothing. In other words, if you want to um, get a job, you have, to, you have to make an effort. You have to have something, and then that something can be made into something else. If you want some other source of blessing in your life, you have to start with a something, with an effort, with an actual thing, and then that something can blossom into something else. It can't be something out of nothing. That is reserved for the creation of the world, and that's already happened. That was a one-time event. So what did God do? He took one point of creation, one physical point, which was a condensation. We use the word simsum, a, a compression of God's heavenly light into the physical realm, and one point, one physical point of matter came into being, and then God grew that thing and expanded it into the physical universe as we know it. That first initial point of matter is the foundation stone of the base of Migdash of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And that's, that's one aspect of the greatness and the holiness of that site. Just so everybody knows, that's, that's, you're right literally at the epicenter of the, of the physical universe, where it all started. So now, we have to understand, as we said, that we are all in the process of completing the world, building the world, and that this is the greatness on a very deep level of understanding why the Torah is spending so much time with the measurements and the construction of the Holy Temple. Because it's all about building the world, finishing the world, making the entire world a dwelling place for God. It already is, but a conscious, revealed dwelling place for godliness. So now, I want to add one thought, something that came to me, struck me as very deep, but it's going to sound very, very simple. Just ask you to think about it. With that as an introduction, you have a certain ordering to the, to the Parshas leading up to Parshas Truma, which, we, which begins, you should know, a, a major shift in, in the presentation of the Torah. Because up until now, we've had the, the, um, the biographies and the deeds of, of the founders of the Jewish people and the founders of the world, beginning with Adam and Eve and going through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and Rivka and Leah and Rachel and all the way through Moshe, and all of the tribes, and, and all the rest, and the enslavement, and, and leaving Egypt, they've all been uh, narrative accounts, if you will. It's all been on the level of narrative. And now, all of a sudden, now there's going to be a major shift in the presentation style of the Torah. Now it's going to be essentially a very long, several-month-long architectural blueprint that's going to be rolled out in the Torah. Very detailed account of how the Mishkan is made, where everything goes, the precision of everything. You know? I can take my life savings 
all of my money, and I can put it on a bus bench in an open Greyhound station and walk away. I'd be foolish to think it's going to be there a month from now. <laughs> where, where you put something is important. <laughs> where you put something is important. And in the most, and you can apply that to every aspect of everything. Where you put something is important. Parsha's truma and the laying out of the base of Migdash, of the construction of everything. Where we're putting things, where we're placing things, how much of what to put where. You know, can you imagine I'm going to a birthday party for my five-year-old and I'm giving, um, I'm giving uh, my house as a birthday present to the little girl for her first, fifth birthday party. You know, you have to know how much am I giving and where am I giving it? These are, these are very precise things. And they affect the entire ordering of the universe. Where you put your love, where you put your effort. One of the greatest things I ever heard Rev. Shlomo Karlovach say, he said, you know something, this thing that you are involving your time in, right? He was presenting this as an open question to, to everyone. He says, would you die for it? Would you die for it? What you're putting all your time into, would you die for it? And then he said, well, then why are you living for it? So, so where we put our, our love and our effort and our time and everything like that, all of these things are being hinted at in the deepest way in terms of the directions of the construction of the base of Migdash and of the Mishkan in the desert. Um, okay, so now let's look at the ordering of the Parshas. Without naming the specific names, just let's get the most macro overview type of conceptual understanding. We leave Egypt and we get our freedom. Okay? So we have our freedom now. Then we get the Torah. And then we start building the Mishkan. So now let's go over that in a, in a very deep way. We get our freedom, then we get the Torah, then we start building the Mishkan. This is our entire life and this is all of history. We have our freedom. We have free will. God gives us free will. The ability to choose whatever activities we want to do. Then we get the Torah. God says, okay, you're born into this world. This is what I want you to do. But you have free choice. You can do it. You cannot do it. It's up to you. And now God asks us to put these things together. What's the building of the Mishkan? It's putting it all together. Free will and our obligations. And that putting it all together is the construction of the Mishkan and the transformation of this entire world. The finishing of this world. That tension 
that tension between free choice and mitzvot. And God says, okay, now put it all together. Put it all together in your life and build something. There's some aspects in terms of the particulars of the Mishkan itself that I just want to go into. Some very interesting things that I saw from Rabbeinu Bechaya, one of the greatest all-time Torah commentators. You know, the Luchos, the holy tablets that we received the Torah on, were placed in a golden ark. And this golden ark had two angels on top of it with spread wings. And between the two wings, there was a space of about a tefach. That's um, translated as a hand's breadth, several inches long. And between the two spread wings of the angels, that's where Hashem spoke to Moshe in the Holy of Holies. Between, between the wings of the angels. Now, the first thing that Rabbeinu Bechaya points out, actually he points out many, many things, but one thing that he points out that just jumped out at me, he says, you know, and a lot of, the Gemara itself asks this question, you know, the Torah, the number one prohibition in the entire Torah is against idol worship. Number one, don't make false idols. And here we have two golden angels. I mean, it's the, in another context, it would be the essence of idol worship. The essence. So what's the difference? On the most simple, simple level, God told us to do it. If we were to do it on our own, death penalty. When God tells us to do it, mitzvah. You know. So so God tells us to make these two golden angels and put them on top of the Arna Kodesh, the holy ark. So Rabbeinu Bechaya says, he says, he says, this is in order that God wants us to understand that there's such a thing as angels. To teach us that there are angels. I mean, that, that in itself, I just, I love the simplicity of that. Just, you should know, there's such a thing as angels. Period, end. On to the next thought. Now, this space, we said, was a, was a hand's breath. And in that little opening, Hashem spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu, would speak to Moshe Rabbeinu. So now he goes on, and Rabbeinu Bechayah says something absolutely amazing. He says, you know, there are four organs on the human body which are approximately the width of that opening where God spoke to Moshe. And that in the letters of those organs spell out the name of Hashem. The Yud and the He and the Vav and the He. So what's the first organ that correlates with the size of that opening? So he says, the Mila. And that correlates with the letter Yud. Now, the Mila, this is where, this is where one is circumcised. This is where the bris is, where the covenant is on the human body. So, the idea that that is correlating with the Yud is an awesome 
That's an awesome thing. If, if just it would make you tremble to just contemplate that for a moment. The next is the pe, the mouth. If you see the opening of the mouth, it's about three and a half inches. It's about a tefach. Pe contains the letter he. Then the lashon. Lashon means tongue. Tongue contains the letter vav. And last, halev, the heart. The bottom he of the yudke vavke. So, so he doesn't go on to explain what's the correlation between these four organs and the opening, but I think perhaps, perhaps the connection is very direct and very obvious. So I just want to speak it out, my understanding of what he's saying, without trying to add anything, just to speak out what I think he's saying. In other words, in other words, there are certain aspects of ourselves through which Hashem communicates to the world. Just like that opening is the space where Hashem spoke to Moshe, these organs in our body are vehicles through which Hashem speaks into the world. So starting with the first letter, with the Mila, well, that's the covenant. Hashem speaks this commitment to the Jewish people into the world. That's a, that's a very high communication. Or if you want to be a little more literal, perhaps, this is the beginning of the conception of where children come from. And what's a greater or more concrete communication of God into the world except children? Bringing people into the world, that's, that's an ultimate level of communication between God and human beings. Then there's the peh and the lushan, the mouth and the tongue. Now I had a little bit of trouble with this because it seems to be that there's a, a level of repetitiveness because the, the mouth and the tongue seem to be doing the same thing. So perhaps you could say on one level, well, it's a unit. So it means to me that when one speaks on some level, when someone speaks to you, you have to understand on some level it's God speaking to you. Right? So, so on one level it's functioning as one. On another level though, Oh, you know, I spoke with the rabbi right before the class started, and he said that starting at a quarter to 12, if we're out, that's fine. I spoke with him directly right beforehand. Okay. Yeah. Well, we all have to set up, and they're coming between 12 and 1 to bring the, all the stuff. So I, I'm just telling you what Rabbi Elias told me. Um, so on one level, you can say that the, the, the mouth and the tongue are one, and then that would solve any, any questions of redundancy. However, perhaps we can say something a little bit more, which is that, you know, in terms, if you study the laws of, um, of, 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 of proper speech, of, of the pur- purification of speech, shmiris halashon, the mouth, and actually the teeth too, but let's just focus on the mouth, are, work in, in a very interesting concert with the tongue, which is that there are two doors ensuring that the tongue doesn't say the wrong thing. And so, so you can say that the mouth is 
that which stops that which is being said. In other words, sometimes, sometimes when God communicates to us, He communicates on two levels. One, by what is revealed, that would be the level of the tongue, and another, by what is not revealed. In other words, sometimes God tells you, you know something? You can't know this. You can't know this. And that's, a, that's, a, that's an, an, an exceptionally important aspect of understanding our role in this world and, and, and getting through life, basically, in terms of just, um, just a survival tool for, for sanity itself, which is that we're ultimately finite creatures. And there's certain things that we can't know. But if we know that we can't know them, then that's, ah, then I can exhale. How do we know we don't know? By not knowing. <laughs> and knowing that we don't know. <laughs> your, your question contains the answer. Sometimes, you know, Rabbi Nachman points that out. He says, sometimes we drive ourselves crazy with certain questions without realizing that the question itself contains the answer. Um, but, um, but anyway, so then what's the, the bottom aspect? Our heart. I mean, how often does God communicate to us through just what's in our heart? You know, not that our heart has the final word or precedence over God's word, but nonetheless, a lot of times we know what our next step is when we listen to our hearts. So, so holy ways in which Hashem is communicating is willing to us, through us, through us. Okay. But I want to talk about I want to talk about this notion of the building of the base of Migdash as the march of history, the completion of history, turning the entire world into a finished dwelling place for God, which is, which is what we're up to. And, um, and what it means to be a builder on an individual level and on a communal level. And there's one... One halacha that um, bless you, that I've been that I've been thinking about lately. You know, there's there's a concept in Torah, very very strong, very strong uh, mitzvah that we have um, about uh, the the false prophet. The false prophet is one who pretends to speak in the name of God, and he receives the death penalty. And, um, and so there's certain variations of the, of, the, of the false prophet. And there's one sort of surprising example of the false prophet that doesn't get spoken about that much. And it's in, I think it's in Parsha's Shoftim, and Rashi speaks it out most clearly. Um, it's the following example. God gives a prophecy to a prophet. Okay? 100% kosher, real, legitimate prophecy to a prophet. Now, someone else, a third party, I'm not sure how this happens exactly, but a third party overhears that prophecy. And then that third party 
says over the prophecy that was communicated from God to that prophet, and he says it word for word. He says it 100% as every single word is exactly the same as God communicated the message to the prophet. This third prophet, this third party goes out, says this prophecy, here's what God says, and says over it, word for word what God said, that person is a false prophet and receives the death penalty. So this is worth thinking about. What did he do wrong? What went wrong exactly? Maybe you can say, well, he shouldn't have done that. I get that. He shouldn't have done that. But why would you call it a false prophet? Didn't he say exactly what Hashem wanted communicated? Why is it false? So the answer is, I think, my understanding, the answer is, is that it's not enough. It's not enough to say the particular words. Part of who says the words is part of the message. Who says the words is part of the message. Understand how absolutely important this is to every single one of us alive. God has given each of us something to communicate to the world. And we are the only ones who can communicate it. And if you say, well, that other person, he's working on the same thing. You know, he's a bigger environmentalist than I am. He says it better than I do. So what do I have to work on it for? He can't. It has to come through you. Whatever that truth is, it has to come through you. Because otherwise, it's not been effectively communicated. You know, there's a story. Um, there's a story about um, when, 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 the, um, when Israel was being settled in the, in the modern era. Um, this is like in the, uh, you know, especially, I mean, the process really began in the, in the 1700s with the students of the Vilna Gon and the Baal Shem Tov. Um, Menachem Mendel of the Tepsk and the Kalisker. They, and also, like I said, the students of the Gra. They went and they, they started settling Yerushalayim in Israel. And, uh, but it, 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 it caught on and it started building and building. And in the 1800s, they really wanted to set up industries. They were, they were really trying, and they wanted to set up vineyards, especially in northern Israel, like near the Golan and things like this. And as we see today, um, my sister-in-law is in the wine business, and they have a big international wine expo uh, in, in, in France, and they have tents upon tents upon tents upon tents, and uh, all, all the world's uh, wineries uh, come there, and they're organized by country. And she's seen over the last few years in her own lifetime the wines of Israel go from a very periphery, peripheral place in this world exhibition of wines to being one of the front and center uh, tents in the entire worldwide presentation of wine. So you should know that the, 
The wines of Israel are just climbing and climbing and climbing in worldwide acceptance and importance. And so the roots of this really take place in this story where people came, they, they, they sent an emissary, an emissary because, you know, they figured this would not just be a, this would also be a place to, to um, create a livelihoods and, and parnosa for the people who wanted to live in Israel if they could make and sell wine. So who are the people with all the money then? The most prominent, richest family at that point was the Rothschilds. So they sent an emissary to the Rothschilds, and they, they, they said, please send us a, a large sum of money so that we can begin to create the, the wine industry in Israel, right? And, um, and the, the Rothschild who heard this uh, request had a question. He says, you know, I hear the importance of this, and he himself was a visionary. And by the way, he, he said, yes, you should know. And it was, a very, it was a very, very great thing that they did. And they endowed, they endowed the beginnings of that. So it was a, it was a, it was a very successful um, mission that took place. But he said to the person, why is it that they sent you? Because the person who they sent was a stutterer. And uh, had tremendous trouble expressing himself. And he answered back. He said, well, they sent me so that you should just hear the words. And that you should just hear the importance of the mission itself. If they send someone who is eloquent, maybe he would impress you, maybe he wouldn't impress you. But the words themselves you may not hear. So they sent me so that just you should just hear the message. <laughs> and uh, a lot of us, especially in this time that we're living in today, with this insane, insane cult of celebrity that we're living in today, where we think that unless someone, you know, is on the cover of People magazine or whatever it is, unless someone's a celebrity, that what they have to say will not, will not get the ear of anyone, will not be received, will not be heard, unless it's all dressed up and... You know, in fame, in, in honor, in wealth, and it's 100% not the case. When we learn this out from the false prophet, we learn this out that even if you say word for word what was meant for someone else, you receive the death penalty, which means... You have to say over. You have to say over what God has given you to say over. It has to come through you. Through you. And even if you're a stutterer, even if you can't express yourself clearly, because you've been charged with the mission, you've been given the means to which to succeed in the mission. And that that style of presentation, even if it's somehow counterintuitive, 
You know, can you imagine someone says, you know, this person just speaks in a whisper. And then somehow that person needed to hear it in a whisper. Or someone like me, you know, I'll tell you, when I start to say Torah, I, I can't not yell. <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> if you know me in person, I don't yell. When I get up here, I start yelling. You know, I'll tell you something. When uh, I went, one of the turning points in terms of my, my uh, observance in Torah, I went to uh, Chabad uh, for a Yom Kippur, and uh, Rabbi Kunin, the senior Rabbi Kunin, should be blessed. After the davening on Yom Kippur, he stood up and he yelled. He yelled, every boy 13 years or older has to put on tefillin every single day. And I, you know, and he had a whole list. And I walked out of there and I said, he's right. And I thought later, you know, I needed to be yelled at. <laughs> I needed that. You know, if someone had said, let me take you out for dinner. You know, there's such a thing as tefillin. Well, you know what? Leave me alone. <laughs> Everyone has to put on to villain. All right, that I get. I get it. <laughs> the way you will deliver over your truth is exactly the right way. It's exact. It's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. You can't not do it right. It's like the perfect date. It's like the perfect date. If you show up. Whatever you're wearing, if it's the right one, that was going to be the right thing to be wearing. You know? Okay, so now I want to talk about, that's, that's the importance of us individually, individually building this mishkan, revealing, revealing these truths, which are all the truths of the Torah. But now let's look at it on the other side. The opposite, it's not the opposite, the other side, which is also an essential part of this. And again, I, I, I actually woke up with this thought yesterday and it just was a kind of, kind of shook me a little bit. I thought to myself, you know, what is the most, what is, what is the most, what place probably belongs to you more than any other place in the world, okay? This might surprise you in a moment. <laughs> what place is more yours than any other place? How about your tombstone? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of yours, don't you think? You know, if you want like a little, like that line from uh, Death of a Salesman, attention must be paid, Right? If you're going to get a little bit of ink in your life, I mean, really, right? That's the spot. Hopefully sooner than that, but at least there, right? And yet, we should all live long to 120 in health and good things and blessing and everything like that. But a person's tombstone contains your name and the name of your father. You think, well... 
Let it just say my name. It's mine. This is my, mo- this is my moment to shine. It's a little late, but... <laughs> but mine, at least, it contains our name and the name of our Father. Which means what? Which means we're part of a process. It's not us as much as we modern life and life itself and everything like that just drives us just continually back into our own heads, back into our own thoughts, back into our own needs. It's just the nature of being alive in this world. It just happens. On some level, it's just survival. If it's too much survival, it becomes solipsism or selfishness. But part of it is just necessary. And we begin to think, it's me. And I'll tell you something very, 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 very deep. I heard from Reb Shlomo Karlbach in the name of the Beis Yaakov, the second Ishbitzer Rebbe. He says, you know what? He says, deep, deep down, everybody thinks they created themselves. Can you imagine? I mean, you come walk up to a, a three-year-old. Where did you come from? Well, I have a mommy and a daddy. Right? And yet, deep, deep down, everyone thinks they created themselves. As a side point, I don't know if Reb Shlomo said this or I thought it over the years, maybe that's one of the reasons it said the most difficult mitzvah in the Torah is honoring your parents. Maybe on one level that's why it's the most difficult mitzvah. Because you know what? Why should I give you so much honor when I created myself? (laughs) Maybe there's just this soul root disconnect that makes it so hard, you know? But we didn't create ourselves. And you know what's got the last word? Our tombstone. So and so. Right? And then one's father's name. And so, getting back to this idea of world history of our lives, of the perfection of the world, of understanding that we're building, we're building something with our lives. We're building something with the world. And we're continuing the process of the previous generation. Correcting whatever they did wrong. Improving upon whatever they began. Initiating whatever's been missing up until this point. But it's all got to be seen in this holy Masorah. This holy unfolding of tradition. You know, like Reb Shlomo says, if you've ever been by a Shabbos table, you know you take the challah, and you take the challah and you dip it in salt, and then you hand it out. So why are we dipping it in salt? So I heard him explain it so beautifully one time. You know, bread is best when it's fresh. Salt is a preservative. You know, before they had refrigerators, they would salt meat and things like that. That's what preserve it. That would 
You know, and if you really want to go on a long journey, you put a lot of salt and you turn it into like a jerky, right? And then that, that lasts for a very long time, weeks. You can have a piece of meat without refrigeration. Weeks or months it can last. So salt keeps something preserved. So challah, right? It's got to be new. Your spirituality, your Judaism, it's got to be fresh. It's got to be alive, right? But it's got to be dipped in salt. It has to also be from your holy fathers and mothers, right? New and old at the same time. So it's us and it's our parents' name. It's this unfolding. And, uh, and I want to say something more now. Since we were talking about meat, and I've been learning the laws of Fasr Bechalaf, I want to tell you something. There's, there's this concept in, in Halacha, in Torah, that's called Bato Bashishim, which means that if if you have, um, and this isn't true in every instance, but in most instances, if you have a, an impurity, say, um, like uh, some non-kosher meat or non-kosher taste or whatever it is, and then you have 60 times that on the kosher level that it's combined with, then what happens is, is that that little um, impurity will... Um, uh, be dispersed and it's as though it's not there. So one way to visualize this is that imagine you have a big pot of chicken soup and that's meat, right? You've got pieces of meat floating in it and it's got a meat broth that's very much meat. And then just by accident, you can't do this on purpose for this to work, but by accident a drop of milk falls into this pot of chicken soup. Well, what happens is, is that that drop of milk becomes dispersed within the pot of meat, and even though you have meat and milk together, and ordinarily that would be a forbidden combination, you have to throw the whole thing out, because you have 60 times the meat to the drop of milk, then it's, the whole thing is permissible. Now, if a little piece of pork had fallen in, and that little piece of pork is recognizable still, then you have to take that out. You have to take it out. If it's called knicker, it's recognizable, you take it out. But even though it imparted a flavor into the vat of chicken soup, nonetheless, it would still be kosher because you have 60 times the permitted more than what had been forbidden in there. Okay? This is called batal bashishim. There are many, many, many applications of this. Okay. So now, here's a question. What happens if shishim arrives in stages. Meaning to say, I've got some milk and I've got 30 times the amount of chicken soup to the milk. Not 60. And now, at a subsequent stage, another 30 times the milk is put into the pot. What do you say? Do you say that now I have 60 versus the drop, and now everything is permitted? Or, or, do you say that that little bit, since it was only 30 times it originally, 
that it trafed up to 30 times, right? So now that whole initial deposit is trafe, is not kosher. And now I need 60 times the volume of that 30 in order for everything to be okay. You hear the questions? Okay. Just to get fancy on you for a moment, in Hebrew, this is called either efshar l'sochto mutter, meaning that when 60 arrives in stages, it's okay, or efshar l'sochto aser, meaning, no, you would need 60 times the combined volume of the 30 that had become traked up in order for the whole thing to be okay. So, so there are different opinions. There are different opinions. Halacha lemaisa, as we say on a practical level, we say, no, really, 60, 60 has to arrive all at once. It can't arrive in stages. It has to arrive all in once. That's the, that's the operative normative way we, we view it. However, something very, very deep is being revealed to us. So this is me talking now. Something very deep is being revealed to us which is the notion that on some very deep level, the idea of salvation arriving in stages. And now I want to tell you a Torah from the Shem Yishmul, and we'll close with this. Remember, we've been talking about the unfolding of history and the building of the Mishkan as the perfection of the world, of the building of the world. And the idea of generation after generation building on previous generations and understanding the idea that salvation arrives in stages in our personal life and on the macro stage level as well. And we have to understand something. That we look at our generation today and we say there's so many problems with the world today. How could it be that good is going to outweigh bad? How could it be that there's going to be this enormous sea change? How are we going to see the redemption before our eyes? It's impossible. It's not going to happen during our lifetimes. It can't. I'm just looking with my own eyes at the world. It can't happen. And yet, the Shem Shmuel says, the arrival of the salvation of the world is working in a much deeper way. All of the merits, all of the effort, all the avoda, all the sacrifice of all of the previous generations, it's still with us. And it's cumulative, the process. So that in your generation it can look crummy. But if you do that mitzvah, because it's cumulative, because salvation does arrive in stages, your mitzvah can put salvation on a worldwide level over the top because the process is cumulative. Your deeds combined with all of the holy deeds of all of the holy and good people that has happened since the beginning of time, they're still on the table. They're still on the table. I heard Rabbi Shlomo say, and we'll end with this thought, more than once I heard him say it, who knows whose prayer is going to bring Mashiach? Who knows whose prayer is going to bring Mashiach? 
And I heard him say with my own ears more than once, how do you know it's not going to be someone who's lying in the gutter on the street, who turns to God and makes one prayer, and that's the prayer that brings Mashiach. 